Right, we'll, we'll kick off then. Okay, babes. Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. Thank you for joining me once again. It... <sighs> you know what you need to do? <laughs> as, a, as a Patreon bonus, right, you should defos do like an outtakes episode. Um, right, so let's just take it from here. Uh, so in an echo to our recent episode on the murder of Victoria Climbier, as you'll have probably heard, my sister Laura is joining us once again for today's episode because we're going to be talking about the abuse and murder of 18-month-old Elsie Scully Hicks. So before we get into it, let's take a moment to thank our most recent Patreon supporters. They are Karen Stevenson, Steph Springit, Janet Ramirez, Lauren Lola, Jennifer, and also Helen Sims, who has increased her pledge. Thank you to all of you and to all of our existing Patreon supporters too. Patreon is a way of supporting me and Bethan and the podcast, ensuring that we and it are around for a long time and not just a good time. If you want to chuck a few quid our way as a kind of tip for the content that you've enjoyed, then you can head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. There's no minimum commitment and we have a lot of ways of saying thank you for your generous support. So if you've been thinking about signing up for a while, why don't you take two minutes today and do it? It would be massively appreciated by us. So for those who haven't yet listened to our episode on Victoria Climbier, as I said, my sister's joining me once again for today's case as she did with that episode. But if you could just kind of explain why you're here. um, Yeah, basically that. Well, uh, because you asked me is probably the easiest answer. So um, anyway, yeah, I um, you asked me to come along because um, you referred to me as a child protection expert, which was joyous to hear, but not quite true. I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a total expert, but I have worked in the field of all things to do with safeguarding and child protection for about 20 years which sort of shows my age a little bit but um so I can't claim to know everything but I have sort of worked in that arena for that amount of time so um I've just come along to lend a voice really and and answer any gaps or questions Mm. if I can that you might have as you walk us through this case and I think the reason I referred to you as a child protection expert is because it's almost a bit vague it's not like a proper job title is it so I thought we'd probably get away with that but you do you you are an expert compared to me so that's why I've brought you along for uh, for this episode because again it relates to a child and it's a child who was adopted so uh, so yeah there's a lot of different uh, organizations that would have been involved with this that you've probably had exposure to uh, in the course of your career yeah I would say probably um, I, I thought there where you were talking about you know it's a bit of a vague title that was a another mark brother dig at the fact that your sister doesn't have what you might call a proper job just because I'm more freelance I do a lot of freelance consultancy now so I don't do a typical nine to five which is a bit of a joke within the family that Laura doesn't have a proper job or Laura just doesn't really have a job every year thousands of children are adopted in the UK According to the UK adoption charity Adoption UK, I wonder how long it took them to come up with that name, the majority of these children will have endured significant abuse, violence or neglect at the hands of their birth families and most of them will have spent time in foster care too. Adoption gives children a second chance of stability, permanence and the love and nurture that all children need. And whilst the outcomes for adopted children are better than for those who stay in care, adoption is not a silver bullet. The trauma suffered in early childhood is carried with these children into their adoptive families. These families need consistent specialist support in order to help them to give their adopted children the best possible chance of a brighter future. Usually this support is robust and comprehensive. Very occasionally it falls short and in extreme circumstances where that is the case, tragic consequences can follow. In 2016, 340 children were adopted in Wales. Ten-month-old Shayla O'Brien was one of those 340 children. Like most children put up for adoption, Shayla had entered this world under very difficult circumstances. Born to a drug-addicted mother, she was added to the Child Protection Register at birth in November 2014. 
Shayla left hospital when she was five days old and she was quickly taken into care by the Vale of Glamorgan Council before a period of assessment was concluded which resulted in a permanent care plan being drawn up and implemented. At this point Shayla was placed with a foster family where she remained until she was placed with an adoptive family in September 2015 at the age of 10 months. This adoptive family consisted of two parents, Craig and Matthew Scully-Hicks, and a previously adopted older child. Matthew assumed the majority of the caring responsibilities for Shayla, and she remained as a looked-after child following her placement with the family until the making of the adoption order. The adoption order was granted in May 2016, Shayla's name was changed to Elsie at that point, and she became from this point onwards an official member of the Scully Hicks family. So, I mean, I'm no expert in adoption, I I know you're not either, but um, I don't know, I just, I find it really weird at this point that Elsie, or Shayla as she would have been back then, was allowed to live with Craig and Matthew before she was officially adopted by them. So, I suppose my question is, what would have happened if, say, six months into Elsie's placement with them, they failed one of the assessments and the adoption application was withdrawn? Would Shayla or Elsie, as she would go on to be called, would she have just been taken from them and put back into foster care? Do you know? Yeah, yeah, it's... um... The way that the adoption process works, it's a very it's a very lengthy process. So it actually takes a very long time to get a child from the position of being removed from a family because of child protection concerns. And you know, there's a number of reasons children might be placed uh, up for adoption. Some of that might be uh, that they're a relinquished child, and and the family have chosen and consented to adoption being the best sort of course of action for that child. And that happens more so in the States, um, I would imagine. But over here, the majority of children that are placed up for adoption are as a result of child protection proceedings. And that's a really lengthy process. So social services get a a lot of bad press about removing children and they just go in and take children out of families and break up homes and so on and so forth. But actually... What they're there to do is to try and make that family unit work for that child. So when there is initial concerns, which there would have been around Shayla um, at the time, lots of support will be put have been put in place to try and stabilise that sort of setup with the biological family. When that starts to fail or we don't see improvements, etc., then we might move to more legal proceedings. And there's lots of different um, processes that, and lots of different hoops that have to be jumped through. Because obviously, we're talking about permanently removing a child from their biological family. So that has to go through court and all sorts of things. So in a nutshell, how the process works is that if there is no hope really of biological family being able to safeguard that child and meet that child's needs, it will go through a a lengthy process and it does take a number of months and sometimes years, very sadly, where the court will make a decision about what is actually in the best interest for that child. And if it gets to the point where they decide it's adoption, probably one of the first things that will happen is something called a placement order. They'll be put under a care order, which means a local authority get the sort of parental rights over that child to make decisions. And then they, if they decide adoption is the best course of action, then they will look for what's called a placement order. And a placement order basically means that the state, if you like, the local authority can now, they've been sort of given those powers by the court to find a family or a home, a permanent home for that child. And that's what will have probably happened with Shayla. I don't know the ins and outs of her specific case, but that's the normal course of action. So she would have been placed under a a placement order and the state will have looked for appropriate adopters and they found this couple that we're going to go on to talk about. And what happens then is that once they've matched a child with an adoptive uh, family, then that they will do all of the assessments during that process. So by this point, actually, all of the assessments will have been done already. And what happens is the child is then placed with the uh, the matched family. But 
in order to get to the next stage. So at this stage, when they're under a placement order and they've been placed with their adoptive family, it's kind of like what they call a bit of a transition period. It's a huge adjustment for everybody. So for a little bit of time, the local authority retains some of the parental responsibilities and rights for that child. And as adoptive parents, you sort of share those rights. So you kind of have been given that child to all intents and purposes. You've been matched with that child. That child is living with you. It's pretty much a done deal at that point. No Mm. more assessments are needed. It's all done. And then after a period of about 10 weeks, I think it's actually by, uh, I think the statutory period of time is 10 weeks. Then you do the very last tick box and you apply for your adoption order. And that is when legally that child becomes yours. The state relinquish their rights over that child and they pass over to you. So, Uh, That was a bit of a long-winded answer, really, but... Yes. Sorry. (laughs) What I'm trying to convey there is that at this point that you're talking about right now, this isn't a situation where they're fostering to adopt it's not a situation where they're trying it out it's not a situation where they're still undergoing assessments it's the really normal part of the process of adoption the Mm. child comes to you you have to wait 10 weeks before you apply for your adoption order as a minimum and there's lots of reasons why why that is and it's partly to do with the fact that to do with money effectively so a child that comes to live with you for that transitional time because you're sharing the responsibility of that child there's a lot more money attached to them Mm. so you can get a lot more support and a lot more help during that transitional phase and then once you kind of feel confident and everything's settled down you get the final rubber stamp of your adoption order so there wouldn't have been a situation in this this stage of the process where they may have failed another assessment because it's all sort of done by this point it's just a formality really that always takes a bit of time after the child has been placed with you does that make sense in a roundabout yeah, way f- fucking hell we'll, we'll be here till christmas at this point <laughs> shut um, up you wanted me on here i know no i am grateful yeah no that does um that does completely explain actually so uh, i won't summarize it but i think everybody will understand that so it does make sense you got it totally wrong basically is what i'm saying you dickhead not really because i know because i said that she was placed with that family yeah and then which you happened started talking in about, september oh, maybe that you know maybe they might have had assessments. they could have fucked up an assessment yeah, yeah which i didn't know that that was yeah. all done exactly that, that does it kind of makes me feel better because i think well at least i've not just placed shayla with them without doing any kind of assessment no and like, the only other time that sometimes it gets a little bit kind of messier is if they off again (laughs) shut up they foster to adopt but i kind of did a little bit we're not talking about that research no and they didn't they didn't foster to adopt so this is just part of the normal process really right okay uh so um we'll just take a very quick break here so this is our, our one and only sponsor of today's episode so we'll get that done now so after that very long winded explanation of adoption um yeah, ultimately for the Scully Hickses, the adoption order was granted in May 2016 and that meant that Craig and Matthew were now the official parents of Elsie, as she was now called. And this really should have been the beginning of a happier life for her, a life filled with love and opportunity. But it wasn't to be. Just two weeks after the official adoption had been granted, Elsie would lie dead in her bed at the University of Wales Hospital, having suffered a catalogue of catastrophic injuries at the hands of Matthew Scully Hicks. So what on earth happened to baby Elsie? Well, in order to answer that question, we must first go back in time. Matthew Hicks was born in Cornwall in 1986, where he lived with his parents and elder sister until the age of 16. The Hicks family were described as the kind of people who created a community. Whatever the fuck that means. After leaving school, Matthew worked in a restaurant for a time before moving to Swindon in December 2002. The following year, he found employment in the town's Oasis Leisure Centre, which I know very well, where he worked his way up from assistant to pool lifeguard and finally to operations manager. In 2006, he met the man he would go on to marry, nightclub owner Craig Scully. The couple began a relationship in 2008 and two years later, they relocated to South Wales, where Craig had a large family. 
Matthew and Craig purchased a property in Cardiff in September 2010. They got engaged in 2011 and they were married in Portugal in August of 2012, now officially becoming the Scully Hicks. Or Scully Hickses, I wasn't sure. They had already decided they would like to have children through adoption and two years after marrying in 2014, they adopted their first child, whom I will refer to as C, followed of course in 2016 by Elsie. When C was placed in the family, it was agreed between Matthew and Craig that Matthew would give up work as an employer services consultant and become C's full-time carer, although he did continue as a part-time fitness instructor. Craig continued to work full-time in a well-paid job that required him to work away from home on a regular basis, and I think he was away from home sort of two or three nights every single week. It is clear, however, that he too played a significant part in caring for C. Absolutely no problems were identified with the placement, such that an adoption order was made in favour of Matthew and Craig. Now, Elsie Scully Hicks was born on the 17th of November in 2014 as Shayla O'Brien. Her birth father was never identified and her birth mother was, as I said earlier, a drug addict and she was actually in prison at one point during the adoption proceedings. Care and placement orders were made, again in favour of the Vale of Glamorgan and on the 10th of September in 2015, Elsie, or Shayla as she was back then, was placed with Matthew and Craig and the adoption was then granted eight months later. To the outside world, the Scully Hickses were the perfect family. Craig and Matthew were happily married, their family unit was now complete and they were also financially secure enough to afford a £400,000 house in an affluent suburb of Cardiff which they moved into in March 2016 which I think was about six months after Elsie had been placed with them. And I say they were affluent enough or financially secure enough to afford this, this house but don't forget they were also secure enough to afford for one of them to not have to work full time at least and to, to care for the children. So this family, the, the Scully Hickses, were the picture of middle class respectability and with Craig's family on hand to help and a large circle of friends nearby they had a big support network too. Information from case records and testimony from people in Elsie's life around the time of her placement with the Scully Hickses paints a picture of a bright and alert girl who responded to attention with obvious pleasure. On occasion she could be assertive and she was beginning to develop a personality described as both willful and playful. She particularly enjoyed musical toys and singing as well as cuddles and she was showing an interest in other children too. It appeared as though she was responding well to her new family. But as we know all too well on this show, appearances can be deceiving. In the eight months that followed Elsie's placement with the Scully Hickses, she endured a catalogue of abuse that left her bruised and broken, both physically and mentally. This abuse was hidden in plain sight and it only came to an end when Elsie suffered a cardiac arrest following a prolonged attack at the hands of her adoptive father Matthew, which ultimately ended her life. So I just wanted to make it clear at this point, so we have the adoptive parents, so that's Matthew and Craig Scully Hicks, but it is only Matthew that abused Elsie and ultimately murdered her. Craig is completely innocent in all of this, he wasn't aware He was working away and he trusted his husband to look after both of the children so he wasn't aware of any of this at all. So what exactly happened in these preceding eight months from placement with the family to official adoption? And how was Matthew able to hide his brutality in plain sight? When Elsie arrived to live with the Scully Hickses, Matthew had established a routine with her adoptive sibling, a routine that he expected Elsie to fit into. But she was a damaged child. Matthew struggled to get her into a routine. Bedtime and mealtimes were extremely challenging and Elsie would scream and cry for prolonged periods of time. There was nothing either Matthew or Craig could do in order to console her. Matthew, as a primary carer for Elsie, confided in friends about the challenges that he was having with her. He described her as having, quote, diva strops and he would often refer to her using coarse and derogatory language. And I will just say at this point, I will be reading out some text messages later on and also some court testimony from neighbours and it's all very cruel and it's also really, really offensive. It's the kind of worst language that that you would ever hear. Um, So please do be warned. 
Of course, it's, as I said, Matthew was struggling with Elsie, but it could have just been teething problems, quite literally perhaps, and Elsie did have developmental problems owing to the fact that her mother used alcohol and drugs throughout pregnancy. And also this was at the start of Elsie's placement with the family, these kind of messages that were being exchanged. Um, So I think it's fair to say that it would have been a very stressful time as Matthew and Craig attempted to bond with this very damaged girl. And I don't want to keep using that word damaged, but I can't really think of a better way to describe Elsie. I know you're um, you're making me cringe saying damaged all the time. I, I, know, think I, I knew you'd hate it. I do hate it. And I can't say that I've got like an overly brilliant option, you know, that's, yeah. that's better. But I, I guess really she's, she's traumatised, you know, she's a traumatised baby who has probably got some degree of um, fetal alcohol syndrome if mum was drinking during pregnancy which brings with it a whole range of behavioral issues for for lots of children doesn't always manifest in that way but quite commonly it does she's been moved around already in these short she's only been in in the world a short few months and lived in a few different homes already she's in this strange place it smells different They look different to what she's used to. The whole environment is different. She's been through a really tumultuous, is that the right word? Um, Turbulent, turbulent start to life, really. And she's crying a lot. Well, that's kind of what you'd expect. So, you know, it's just heartbreaking that, that Matthew takes the stance around, you know, responding to her in the way that he does even verbally and all of that sort of thing because she's just a traumatised little girl that is trying to reattach, form new bonds and feel safe. And that's quite normal for a baby to, when they're going through that adjustment phase and not feeling very safe or secure and everything feels different, of course they are going to be out of routine and cry. And really and truly, Pretty much every adoption process I've ever known of, and I'm I'm not an adoption expert per se at all, I was always on the other other side of the coin really around the, the child protection area. But I've got a couple of friends that have adopted and I have been a referee for for two of them. So have a little bit of a personal insight into the process as well. And they, the amount of scrutiny that they had to undergo and the amount of training before a child was placed with them. And a lot of it was about trauma and what to expect and Mm. um, all of those sorts of things. So he should have been really well informed around those sorts of things and almost mentally ready to take on the challenge of settling a a child that's that's experienced trauma and he just so wasn't and that's just I, I I wonder if though I wonder if they were almost lucky with C um and C was perhaps a bit better behaved initially and didn't cry as much and and therefore Matthew was just completely unprepared for Elsie um, it could could be that they could have just had an easy ride with C, and and he wasn't prepared for this. Potentially, and we don't know much about C. Um, we don't know the background to C or anything of that nature, so it's really difficult to say. But absolutely, it could well be that the experience with C was completely different, and Matthew just was completely out of his any sort of capability zone or comfort zone with dealing with a child that presented in a totally different way and maybe was complacent when they were going through the training process for this new child and you know maybe it Mm. you know but there's whatever went on you can never excuse the brutality that Matthew went on to portray and inflict upon Elsie. You know, it's just, mm. there's just no, the, I think we're trying to understand something that most people find it really, really difficult to fathom, understand, logic out why you would ever inflict that kind of abuse on a child. M- most ordinary people just can't even begin to understand a reason for that. And I think Mm. also, you know, during that period of time of waiting for the adoption order to come through, the reason there is a wait on that is because it allows for additional support. So there would have been a lot of support in place. Social workers will have probably still been visiting really quite frequently. There would have been frequent review meetings. There would have been access to funding for different interventions and support and therapeutic interventions, all sorts of things. All he had to do was put his hand up and say, I'm struggling to settle this one. It's not the same experience as it was with C. Mm. Can somebody step in and help out a little bit? 
but he chose not to do that. Mm, and I think they, they did make that clear in, in the judgment around this when he was ultimately sentenced. Um, and I just wanted to say at this point as well that Elsie, um, you know, as you said, she'd had this really turbulent start to her life. So uh, she'd been, uh, she'd gone from basically hospital into care into a foster family and now she's with the Scully Hickses. And in the initial months of her life, she was in and out of hospital because they feared that her mother, her birth mother, had passed on hepatitis C. And um, she hadn't, but there were there were a lot of problems with Elsie, mobility problems in particular, and uh, developmental problems. So, yeah, she'd she'd been in and out of hospital, and it had just been passed around quite a lot uh, by age ten months when she finds herself in this new, what's supposed to be a forever home. So, as I said, it, it would have been, to be fair, it would have been an incredibly stressful time for the Scully Hickses, particularly so for Matthew, who now found himself looking after not only C, but also Elsie full time. But to those who saw him regularly, be it healthcare professionals, social workers or friends and family, he did appear to be a loving and caring father. The difficult times came when he was alone with either Elsie and C or just with Elsie. On the 5th of November in 2015, Matthew claimed that Elsie had accidentally fallen from an activity table. Some days later, when it became obvious that Elsie was not weight-bearing on her right leg, and following discussion with Craig and his family, Matthew took Elsie to her GP, who in turn referred her to the orthopaedic trauma clinic at the University Hospital of Wales. There, Elsie's pelvis and legs were x-rayed. The doctor who viewed the x-rays identified only one fracture, that of the tibia. And this is really important now. So it would later be established that Elsie had sustained fractures to both the tibia and the femur of her right leg, but the latter was missed. Um, And that they're two, they're breaks in very different places. So I don't know which is which, but one break was just above her ankle and the other was just above her knee. So very much on different parts of the leg. Had the doctor accurately interpreted the x-ray at the time, hospital protocol would have required him to show it to a consultant and Dr Nia John, a consultant community paediatrician at the Cardiff and Vale University Health Board, who has a safeguarding role there, later said that had the existence of both fractures been detected, the management would have been different, a child protection medical would have been carried out and further professional advice would have been sought. Tragically, this was a missed opportunity. Additionally, it has since been claimed by medical professionals that the existence of these particular fractures in a young child who is not independently mobile should have caused concern. Both fractures would have usually only resulted from significant trauma to the area and not as a result of falling from a low height. The two fractures would have required a twisting mechanism. The form Matthew described would not have resulted in two separate fractures like this, each with its own mechanism in a child of Elsie's age. So it's likely that these injuries were inflicted by Matthew and were therefore not accidental, but that was absolutely missed at the time. So it's so similar to that Victoria Climbier case with hospital admissions where things were just being missed, weren't they? Absolutely. And I, I'm, you know, I, again, I'm not uh, overly an expert in any of this, but I think that it can be really challenging for medical professionals to, to spot things like that in children's bones because they're a little bit less sort of um, obvious, those sorts of fractures in children as they are in, mm. in adults. And, and also at the time this would have happened, that, that he would have been, I'm right in thinking this is before the adoption order was. Yeah. In place. Yeah. So he would have been sharing parental responsibility with the local authority, with the social workers. And so any time a child is admitted to hospital or has to have medical treatment during that phase, the social worker has to sort of be involved and know about it. So this is a little bit different to Victoria Columbia because in many respects, although there were no live concerns around child protection so everybody was possibly approaching this in a more relaxed fashion because they didn't have any Mm. concerns going on that absolutely social workers would have known about that hospital admission so it's a little bit different you would think that there would potentially be slightly more eyes on it even though this is a relaxed situation we're not worried about this child in that kind of way there would have been the hospital 
investigating if you like even if it's just a a a sort of universal normal investigation of an x-ray social worker would have known that there'd been a hospital admission and I think any form of a break in an under one-year-old would be something that I would certainly wanted to have asked a few more questions about even if I was quite relaxed about dad's capabilities and things of that nature in a sort of limited mobility little person if they've experienced a break that's something that I would definitely wanted to have asked a few more questions about it just doesn't feel like anybody did they took Matthew sadly at face value and that was what created that missed opportunity really and I wanted to come on to that a bit later on in in the episode because we'll kind of talk about how Matthew was able to hide in plain sight and I mean ultimately yeah, we'll, we'll perhaps talk about it in a bit more detail. But I think it was because he was respectable. He was middle class. This family had money. Uh, he looked very normal. Um, so I think people didn't suspect that abuse could be happening under the roof of the Scully Hicks home. Absolutely. And, you know, children do have accidents. It's not out of the realms of possibility that a, a child of that age could fall and could injure themselves. I remember you when you were little mm. and we went through a phase with you. Well, you know, I remember you being, I don't know, maybe eight eight to about nine years old and we must have been at the hospital with you every other week with mom because you fell out of a tree and cut your leg open you fell over and broke your finger and And you threw a rock at my head once do you remember that that was a complete accident but yeah I threw a rock at your head once and I do vaguely recall that for about two out of those hospital visits it was we'd been for Sunday dinner at the pub or we'd been out to the pub or something and you would only be about eight and you'd be going to this we were coming out of the pub and I always remember mm. cringing thinking what kind of family are they gonna think we are the thing you keep is, injuring though, yourself when we're at a yeah. pub but the thing is like they didn't really give a shit back then like medical professionals or I don't know there, there just wasn't the procedures in place that there are now no, so I bet but, no questions were asked back then no but I do vividly remember on at least one occasion them asking you to tell the nurse what happened so obviously mom goes in saying oh this has happened particularly when that unfortunate incident with the rock meant that you cracked your head open that complete Mm. accident um obviously no i know it was an accident but it fucking hurt well yeah and it was horrendous it looked like you know there was blood everywhere but mm. I remember particularly then you know rushing we were rushing in we were all, we were on holiday weren't we and we were rushing into A&E yeah. and there was blood everywhere and we got fast tracked through because it looked a lot worse than it was because it wasn't that bad Mark be no, honest. it was it was there's it, blood everywhere. Honestly it was like a butterfly stitch was all you needed but anyway I do vividly remember mom like regurgitating the story to the nurse and then the nurse sort of stopping her and saying can you tell me Mark what happened and that is really? something yeah and that's something that is really good practice to get the child to sort of say and even then I remember that particular nurse asking you to say what had happened so I think you just pointed at me and started crying or something probably oh (laughs) fuck's sake what a little pussy what a fucking pussy anyway um right we're going off on a tangent but yeah back to Elsie this was you know it was a serious leg break and her leg was in a cast for a number of weeks and she wasn't able to put any weight on it during that time so you know I guess baby's bones are a bit different as you said to adults and maybe they heal more quickly um but yeah it was it was still a nasty break it would have been painful I'm sure So this leg break is the first likely known abuse of Elsie by Matthew. And I'm saying known in adverted commas because, of course, this wasn't known at the time. It's only come to light since. A month later, Elsie suffered a bruise to her face. Matthew claimed she was pulling herself up on a toy kitchen, holding onto the doors when they opened and, quote, she literally went face first down towards the edge of the unit. And I just want to make it clear at this point as well that um, Elsie did have these mobility issues and she, she would struggle to kind of move around. So she she was known to kind of grip onto objects to steady herself and to move around. The injury happened at the same time as the adoption review and Elsie was seen by her social worker, an adoption social worker and an independent reviewing officer, but the presence of the bruise was not recorded. Five days later, a health professional also saw the bruise and Matthew was advised at this point by this health visitor to seek medical treatment for the injury, but he actually didn't do that. 
By January the 18th, little Elsie had another bruise on her face, which again went unchecked by medics. On March 2016, Elsie had sustained further bruising, and this time, Matthew claimed that she'd fallen down the stairs. The fall, and I'm using inadverted commas for that as well, was deemed to be sufficiently serious by Matthew as to warrant medical treatment. Matthew claimed the fall was as a result of Elsie pulling herself up on the top stair gate, which had an unsatisfactory catch. He said the gate opened and Elsie fell down the stairs, and he said that she fell literally from top to bottom. At the hospital, the doctor who saw and treated Elsie accepted Matthew's account of the fall as being consistent with the injuries sustained, and it would later be accepted by medical professionals that the injuries were indeed consistent with what Matthew had described. And we really don't know what happened here, to be fair. Elsie could have actually fallen down the stairs, Matthew could have pushed her, he could have shaken her and caused injuries consistent with a fall down down the stairs. Um... I think it's widely accepted that Matthew did cause the fractures to Elsie's leg and the bruises in both December and January, but this, the stair-falling incident, I don't think we'll ever know. That was never fully established. No, and I think we have to we have to take into account at this point that, you know, we talked about missed opportunities and things like that. And again, it is very different to, to Victoria Columbia that we looked at last time because this is somebody who's been through some of the most rigorous assessment processes out there if you want to look after a child. Had what looked like a, and probably was a very successful adoption with a previous child. And the injuries are looking consistent with the story. So at this point, it's really, really difficult to look back and think what sometimes things just happen. And even with hindsight, there isn't that much that we could have perhaps done at the time. So I really do want to kind of give a little bit of a break there to the social workers and the medical professionals, Mm. because, you know, it's it's great with hindsight. But even with hindsight, I look back at that case and think, you know, you can't be too critical around the fact that they they didn't question further or look into that with any more detail because this was somebody that had been through all those processes and you know was had a consistent story around what happened and like you say maybe that part of the story did happen in the way that Matthew mm. portrayed it we just don't know so it's a it's a messy one this is i think it's a it's a really tricky one and, and don't forget, Elsie's got these mobility issues and it sounds plausible, doesn't it, that she's she's going to grip onto things like a stair gate or a play cooker or whatever it might be uh, in order to, to steady herself and to move around. So it does sound plausible, I think. Um, and also, Matthew's husband, Craig, did attest to the fact that that stair gate catch didn't work properly. But if that was the case, then wouldn't you have fixed it or replaced it? Um And, you know, I don't know. We have to be careful here because Craig is completely innocent in all of this. He wasn't aware of Matthew's actions, of the catalogue of abuse that he was inflicting on Elsie. He worked away a lot. He trusted his husband to look after the children. And of course, no parent is perfect. Accidents do happen. And yes, maybe Craig could have replaced that stair gate if the catch wasn't working properly but he didn't and that doesn't make him complicit or guilty or a bad dad I think it just makes him human accidents are are going to happen and this could have been a genuine accident and um, you know that does happen so anyway whether this was a genuine accident or not the fractured leg the bruises in December and January most definitely weren't What we do know with certainty, however, is that Matthew was clearly struggling to cope with Elsie and he was clearly struggling to control his anger towards her by now. He hid this from social workers and health visitors, even from his own husband. There, you've said that. You've said husband there. Fuck off. (laughs) Do you know, I knew like when I was kind of reading through this, I think I clocked myself saying it. Yeah, but do you know what? I'm just, I'm speaking for all of your listeners right now. They'll have just heard you say that. And I, I can imagine all of your listeners shouting at their whatever device they use to listen to this podcast on going husband listen to the way it says husband oh fuck off they can all fuck off um i don't know why i can't say it again another word on that long list of words i can't pronounce um okay so to craig and the professionals professionals matthew continued to present as a concerned caring and loving father what people didn't see or hear because they weren't there in the house at the time was the frustration and anger that he was 
exhibiting uh, towards Elsie. And later on, the the judge in his court case, spoiler alert, obviously this goes to court. Uh, later on, I think the judge or the prosecution allude to this kind of Jekyll and Hyde character. And I think it does appear that Matthew was very controlled when people were around and he could control his anger and any kind of outbursts. But when he was on his own with C and Elsie or just with Elsie, that's when it came out, when he knew he could get away with it, I guess. By the 25th of May in 2016, 18-month-old Elsie had been living with the Scully Hickses for eight months and had been formally adopted by them for just two weeks at this point. That day, the 25th of May, started out like any other. It was a Wednesday, Craig was at work, possibly working away, and Matthew was at home caring for C and Elsie. A party was to be held that weekend, I think it was that weekend, to celebrate Elsie's adoption, and Matthew had decided to take her and C into town in order to purchase a party dress for Elsie. And I think Matthew's niece was also with them for most of that day, but she was like a 27-year-old, she was fully grown up, uh, so she was with them for the majority of that day. So I don't know if the niece went, but you know they basically went into town, uh, they, they browsed the children's department of Marks and & Spencer, and Matthew Matthew sent pictures of outfits that he liked to Craig, who was at work, before deciding on one to purchase for that party. After arriving home, Matthew prepared the children's tea. I think the niece definitely left the house at 5.20pm. Um, I think they had sausage and vegetables and pasta for tea. Uh, the children had finished eating tea by 5.45pm. Now, we don't know what happens after this, but we do know that Elsie went into cardiac arrest shortly before 6.20. In the intervening 35 minutes, Elsie had sustained three brain injuries, as well as bleeding in the eyes, the retina, the perimacular retinal folds, and the area surrounding the optic nerve. She'd also sustained a full thickness fracture of the skull and fractures to three posterior ribs. Matthew called the emergency services at 6.19pm. C was present when he rang the emergency services, present while he gave Elsie CPR, and also when the emergency services personnel arrived and commenced their treatment on Elsie. So, you know, this would have been incredibly traumatic for C. And we don't know whether C was present at the time of Elsie's assault, but they certainly would have witnessed its immediate aftermath, which is just harrowing to, to think about, isn't it? So the timing of the phone call is significant. It came shortly after the meal and preceded Elsie's bedtime at 7pm. These would appear to be the times when Elsie could cry and demonstrate what Matthew had described to friends as attitude. It would appear that Elsie's behaviour that evening was met by Matthew's frustration and anger, causing him to lash out so violently that Elsie would ultimately die as a result of her injuries just four days later. And... It was, we'll come on to the court case in a moment very soon, but it was talked about in court that they believed really that Matthew had violently shaken Elsie and caused the majority of those injuries and then he'd thrown her to the ground or hit her head against something as he shook her, which caused those injuries. And Matthew, Matthew's defence was that he'd kind of been in the kitchen, he goes back into the living room where they, they all were and Elsie's on the floor and she's kind of like, vague and not responding to him so she doesn't respond to him when she walks when he walks into the living room and he said that she's just all kind of floppy so he's kind of saying that he was out the room something's kind of happened and he then goes back in the room and you know miraculously she's got all of these injuries which he says he talks about essentially these injuries being caused by the previous accidents and how when she allegedly fell down the stairs back in May 2016, two months before her death, that when she came home from hospital after that, she was kind of never the same again. Um, so he, he kind of lays a lot of the blame there and he vehemently denies any any wrongdoing or any part in, in Elsie's murder. So an investigation was, of course, launched and Matthew was arrested. It was some months afterwards in December of 2016, so about seven months after Elsie had died. The trial took place at Cardiff Crown Court the following year and lasted for three weeks. Paul Lewis, prosecuting, said Matthew Scully-Hicks had assaulted, abused and ultimately murdered Elsie, an innocent little girl who ought to have been safe in his care. 
He said, We allege that his attack on her that day was not the first time he had employed violence toward Elsie, nor was it the first time that he had caused her serious injury. We allege that his actions on the late afternoon or evening of May the 25th were the tragic culmination of a course of violent conduct on his part towards a defenceless child, an infant that he should have loved and protected, but whom he instead assaulted, abused and ultimately murdered. During the trial, a neighbour gave evidence and testified to hearing Matthew say shut up repeatedly in response to Elsie's crying. On occasion, she said she heard him using swear words when telling the baby to shut up. It was her impression that Matthew was exacerbated and frustrated because of the child's crying. Another neighbour in the same house described Matthew's voice as sounding like a controlled tantrum. It was associated with the baby's crying, this kind of raised voice and these comments of shut up. And on one occasion between February and April 2016, one of the neighbours heard the baby crying and Matthew responded by saying shut up you little fucking brat. Isn't it horrific and it gets worse now. The next time the neighbour heard the baby crying, he heard Matthew say shut up you silly little cunt. Isn't it? I mean to... You know, I talked about how the prosecution sort of stated that Matthew had assaulted and all of this to Elsie, but it also horrifically insulted her. And it was a really undignified life when when she was alone with with him or perhaps he was there as well. Um, But but yeah, I have no you know, this was testimony that was believed by the jury. Um, Matthew argues against it and said that he had a bad relationship with the neighbours and they were very difficult neighbours. But yeah, you know, I have no reason. The judge said there's no reason to disbelieve the neighbour's testimony. So it's just horrific, isn't it? It's awful. And whilst at that age, Elsie may not have understood those words and what that, you know, what those words meant or even what had a concept really of what swear words were and things like that. But said in anger and with a raised voice, that's frightening for any yeah. kind of child. It's frightening for an adult, never mind a child. And so... That just what that does to me is give gives me those horrible shivers that you get when you just picture this beautiful little girl, completely innocent, already had a difficult start, and then she's shouted at with such hatefulness. It's just mm. horrible, horrible. Yeah, and this, as I said, this was heard through the walls, through the kind of joining walls to the next house. So, you know, he wasn't just kind of saying it, he was clearly shouting it at her. And, you know, like you said before, there is no such thing as a perfect parent. And, you know, I'm sure most parents out there will relate to being pushed to the point where you do want to say sort of inappropriate things and shout at them and, you know, all of those sorts of things. And sometimes you do do that. But I think there's something really, quite awful about screaming those words at a baby I just think that's you know and yes we all might have felt like that and had our buttons pushed and been tired and sleep deprived and all of those sorts of things but if you're getting to the point where you're feeling that you know you can't control yourself anymore then you need to raise your hand and say I need some help and he'd got the avenues to do that in more ways than possibly a parent who had given birth biologically and, you know, he'd got those support mechanisms Mm. around him and he chose not to to fall back on them. Yeah, which is the saddest part. And as I said, well, I'm not sure if I did say it yet, but I think the judge and the prosecution and and different experts that were involved in this case and the trial that that we're coming up to, um, or the conclusion of that we're coming up to, they they kind of said he did have these avenues uh, of support that he just didn't explore. He wouldn't put his hand up. He wouldn't even confide in Craig and say, do you know when you're working away, I'm really struggling at home and I need a bit of support. He wouldn't do that. and, and that was ultimately what led to Elsie's death, really. And I also think, you know, you've got to place the blame in the right place. And I don't, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to project that blame onto anybody else that where it isn't rightfully theirs to take, really. But if I was a neighbour and I was semi regularly hearing somebody shout those sorts of profanities at a, an under one year old. Whether I'd got a good relationship with my neighbour or not, I'd be reporting that somewhere, Mm. you know. I Mm. would not be able to sit comfortably hearing that kind of language and those raised voices at a baby 
and not report that somewhere. And you can report, mm. you know, we talked about this with the Victoria Columbia um, case. And if anything comes out of listeners listening to these sorts of things, it's just that constant reminder, really, that anybody can record, report concerns about a child that they're worried about. You can do it anonymously. You only need to Google your local safeguarding team in your area. You can phone NSPCC. You can phone 101 if you're in the UK. You know, there's lots of different ways that you can report concerns. And I would always rather report something where it turned out to be fine than not report something when it didn't. Mm. And I think if you're having if you have any doubts, then you're reporting in with good intentions. So whether anything comes of that or you're right or wrong or you've misinterpreted the situation, at least you um, pursued it so that that outcome could be reached rather than chanced it. So I, d- I don't know why they didn't report anything. As far as I know, they didn't. Um, but But yeah, you're absolutely right. I do agree. So in one message police found on Matthew's iPad, he described Elsie as Satan dressed up in a baby grow. And in another message he wrote, I'm going through hell with Elsie. Mealtimes and bedtime are like my worst nightmare at the moment. And she's been up there screaming for 10 minutes nonstop. She just stopped, but I doubt that's the last I'll hear tonight. So the, the contents of these text messages were obviously all read out in court and reported across all of the media. But actually, I a bit like what we said before, you know, when you look at these, so saying your baby's like Satan dressed up in a baby grow, obviously that's an appalling thing to say, but we don't really know the context around it. And that Matthew argued that there was a lot of love in those text messages and also a lot of humour, and that they were taken out of context. But I think based on everything else we know, they are incredibly worrying. But I don't think in isolation him saying, I'm going through hell with Elsie, and that I'm really struggling with mealtimes and bedtimes, I don't think there's anything wrong in in saying that. Um, But when you add everything else to this that we know, of course, it it was incredibly worrying, a precursor to what he was going to do or what he was already doing. So in court, regarding Elsie's leg break, Dr Sarah Harrison said the explanation that she had fallen from an activity table was unlikely, adding that she had never seen fractures of both bones like that in a child of that age. Consultant paediatrician Dr Stephen Rose said her injuries could be explained by her being shaken violently and that her fractured skull would have been caused by a blow to her head with Elsie thrown against a hard floor or her head knocked against a wall, as I kind of said before. With reference to the bruising which appeared on Elsie's forehead in December 2015, which Matthew claimed was as a result of Elsie pulling herself up to a standing position using the handles of that play kitchen, this was heavily disputed in court. An identical play kitchen was presented to the jury and the prosecution did not accept that Elsie would have fallen forwards as the doors opened. They showed it was more likely that she would have fallen backwards and would not therefore have struck her head on the worktop of the kitchen. On the health visitor's account, which he denied, Matthew told her that he had sought medical treatment for Elsie, but the jury was told that no medical treatment was sought for her in respect of that bruise, as I said earlier. So ultimately, Matthew Scully Hicks was convicted of murder by a unanimous jury and sentenced to 18 years in prison. In passing sentence, Judge Mrs Justice Nicola Davies, DBE, said there is only one sentence and that is of life imprisonment. She detailed two aggravating factors, namely that Elsie was particularly vulnerable by reason of her age and the abuse of a position of trust, and also that the actions that ended Elsie's life were not isolated. She went on to say, no remorse has been shown. You were living in comfortable social circumstances with the close support of professional agencies, your husband and wider family. You have been assessed by two independent psychiatrists who found no psychiatric condition which would have affected your actions. Having begun with the starting point of 15 years as a minimum term of imprisonment and taking account of the aggregating and mitigating features identified, the appropriate minimum term of imprisonment which you must serve is one of 18 years. She went on to say it was a gross abuse of that trust. It was an abuse of the responsibility which had been placed upon you as her adoptive father to protect and care for his young, vulnerable and defenceless child. Your actions in killing Elsie have devastated three families. 
the birth family of Elsie, Shayla as they knew her. Shayla's grandmother has written of the loss not only to herself but to Shayla's birth siblings. The family you had sought to build with Craig Scully Hicks, your own birth family. Your parents have sat through every day of this difficult trial with stoic dignity. So I probably didn't read that very well, but, you know, basically, yeah, he's ruined Shayla's family's life. He's ruined his own immediate family's life and he's ruined his own wider family's life. His parents attended that trial every day. He was on bail, staying at their house in Cornwall whilst attending court each day. Um, So, yeah, just horrific. So a serious case review was instigated to examine the contact Elsie and Matthew Scully-Hicks had with various agencies after she was placed in their care. It looked at how the adoption was approved and monitored and found that professionals missed a series of opportunities to save her life. An extended child practice review found professionals saw Elsie's injuries in isolation, lacked professional curiosity and accepted what Matthew told them. The review concluded, This family were perceived to be very positive parents for this child. Given how strongly this view was held, the injuries that the child sustained were never considered as anything other than childhood accidents. At a press conference in Cardiff, Lance Carver, the Director of Social Services at Vale of Glamorgan Council, apologised for errors in Elsie's case. He said the findings do indicate that social workers and staff from all agencies saw the adoption as very positive. They perceive the adoptive family as a really positive solution for Elsie. The report identifies issues that that positive lens meant that they were not looking in the way they should have been. Lance Carver admitted that no disciplinary action had been taken against any members of staff and the report referred to the x-ray which had been taken following Elsie's first admittance to hospital in November 2015 and it was noted that, quote, had both fractures been recognised on the x-ray, this would have raised safeguarding concerns that would have instigated the child protection process. So that was the very first time where an intervention could have or should have been made. In reference to the bruising Elsie sustained in December 2015, the report said, Elsie suffered a large bruise to her forehead that lasted for eight weeks. Two social workers and an independent reviewing officer from the Vale of Glamorgan Council saw the bruise during an adoption review at the Scully Hicks's home. They failed to make any note of the bruise and it was not brought to the attention of the adoption court along with concerns that Elsie was developing a squint. Lance Carver said it's difficult to second guess what would have happened if that had been recorded properly. It clearly wasn't recorded properly and that is inadequate. So this is, I think, not nearly as bad as what we saw with Victoria Climbier in terms of malpractice, but obviously it's not good, is it? No, and I think that the the big thing that stands out to me there is the criticism around taking things at face value and not having what we call professional curiosity. And professional curiosity is something that I talk a lot about when I'm delivering training or anything of that nature, because I think you know, not to be too stereotypical, but as Brits, you know, as British people, we are not very good at, well, we've all got the inclination to want to be nosy, but we're very much guarded against coming across as interfering or too nosy or anything like that. It's almost part of our culture not to do that. And Mm. professional curiosity is about, as a professional, I'm not going to take anything at face value. I'm going to be really interested in what's going on and what's happened and really try and dig deep and understand situations and, and be curious about what went on and ask questions. And that doesn't have to be a, a hostile experience. It doesn't have to be an attacking experience. But remaining professionally curious in your role of working with children and young people is really important. And if the social workers, the health visitors, the medical professionals had had a sense of that professional curious curiosity, there may well have been a few more questions asked and, you know, more clarification sought. And, you know, I'm just really interested, you know, explain to me again, what was she doing when she had that fall with the whatever it was that she was opening the doors of and 
show me where it was and oh gosh I can't I can't picture that in my mind what you know all of those sorts of questions were just sort of missed it feels like and everybody mm. just saw like you said you know a stereotypically perfect looking adoptive parents in a lovely home by the sounds of it with plenty of money and you know obviously fairly articulate and all of those sorts of things and and they never looked beyond the surface they never scratched the surface of what it looked like on face value and I think that's that's one of the big lessons to learn I think out of this particular case. Mm. And yeah the report or the serious case review did highlight a lot of good practice throughout the adoption process so you know it wasn't all bad I won't go through all of the good stuff but that you know there's several bullet points of good practice so it really was just a couple of you know very very serious mistakes where um, more investigation should have been conducted and that would have saved Elsie hopefully Um, but as you said earlier we really need to not forget who was responsible for Elsie's murder and that's Matthew Scully Hicks Um, So, yeah, he's still in prison. He, uh, as I said, he vehemently denies any involvement in Elsie's death. He's launched or his friends and family launched a crowdfunding appeal in 2017 to raise money for a a kind of proper appeal. Um, And Matthew, in that crowdfunding page on there, there's like about 2000 words of of his kind of version of events. So, you know, I couldn't include all of that here because we'd be here forever. But if, if you're interested in what he has to say, uh, we must not forget he has been found guilty of this. But if you're interested in what he has to say, then you will find that online. And it is really interesting, um, you know, his kind of version. But but that's all it is. He's been found guilty. So he is responsible for, for Elsie's murder. And do we know what the situation is with Craig? Do Did you do any research yeah, around? So, did they divorce I mean, like, or...? Well, I think, yeah, like, so they, they did split up. And I think I remember reading this at the time. I think it was kind of put to Craig that you need to accept that Matthew was responsible for Elsie's murder because otherwise, uh, and, and you need to formally kind of split up from him, otherwise we're going to have issues with C. And of course, there was like a real formal investigation around whether C could stay with Craig and that that was all fine. So C was able to stay with him. Um, but yeah, he and Craig uh, split up absolutely. And as far as I know, C is still living with Craig. Um, so yeah, to answer that question. Yeah, no, definitely. And it makes total sense because, uh, you know, if Craig is in the position of wanting to carry on having C living with him, then, you know, he would absolutely, you know, absolutely, he would have to sort of sever ties with somebody who's currently in prison for, you know, child cruelty and and child death and all of those sorts of things. So that makes total sense. And, you know, all, all, I guess that any of us can hope for is that Craig is, you know, moving forward in his life and ca- continuing to provide a, a secure living home for C, you know, so at least mm. one child has the ability to maintain that relationship and that stability, you know. Yeah. And just very sadly, just to kind of bring things to a close, um, Elsie or Shayla, as she was known to them, her biological family weren't actually notified of her death until I think it was January 2017. So seven months after she died, uh, she wasn't they, they weren't told that until seven months later, which I think is really sad. And I know that she'd been formally officially adopted uh, seven months earlier, but I think they really should have been notified of that upon her death. Um, so I thought that was very sad as well. That's really sad, and and I think that's fairly standard to be honest. Because when a child really? is, when a child is adopted, there is you know legal responsibility for that child moves to the adoptive parent, so it, they get the same rights as if they gave birth to that child in to all intents and purposes. So, but these were extenuating circumstances, and you know I don't know what. Many times with adoptions, there's different sorts of orders around contact. So it might be they had letterbox Mm. contact where the birth family could write to the adoptive family and vice versa and things. So I don't know what sort of contact, if any, they kept post-adoption, but it doesn't feel right, certainly, does it? It doesn't feel right that they had to wait that long before they found out that that really jars. Yeah, because I think upon the death of the child, all of that legal stuff should be kind of rescinded with and 
I don't know that you know who are you trying to protect at that point. I just I just thought it would have been the right thing for for them to be notified. And I think there there might have been some findings around that in um in the inquiry that that happened after her death. So um so yeah, a ve- very very sad tragic case with echoes of Victoria Climbier, although you know at the same time very very different case. Victoria was very much hidden in this country, and Elsie's there in plain sight. And, um, you know, it makes it almost even more tragic because she could have been saved so much more easily and she still wasn't. She was still failed, uh, particularly so by Matthew. So, so yeah, very sad, sad episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you did get to the end. Um, join us again next week and then we're on a week break, maybe two weeks after that. So we'll see you then. Bye. Hi, angels. It's your girl, Louise Rumble, and I'm the host of the Open House podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now, each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy, and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favourite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.